Welcome to Mental Health and You. This podcast brings you the best information and advice from across the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Every fortnight, we will hear from one of our specialist areas, be it school and parent support, the recovery college, well-being or research. This week's podcast comes from a recent seminar that the NSFT Research Department hosted. We've done a series of three seminars, and this one was all about our older people's studies. This podcast focuses on a new study called Discovery, which looks into how recovery colleges can help those who live with dementia. We will firstly hear from Professor Chris Fox, who will introduce himself, followed by Junie West, a mental health nurse by background, who's been leading our older people's research team for the last four years or so. This study discovery may seem quite unusual to use the word recovery in the same sentence as dementia, as dementia is a progressive illness. So this talk is really looking at what they mean by recovery and why they think this topic is important to explore. Here is Professor Fox of NSFT and Exeter University. Yeah, what am I? Who am I? I'm an old age psychiatrist. Um, I currently work in the city team at the Sophie Centre one day a week on a Wednesday, um, but I'm also employed uh, since the 1st of September by University of Exeter, so um, there's a little bit of Devon in Norfolk now, which is a bit bizarre, but there we go. Uh, this project, Discovery, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, this afternoon, I carry this with Junie West, groundbreaking pieces of research led by the trust in effect, which is great, uh, and it's been a long time coming, and this is extremely large scale this is old news, but basically dementia is increasing, despite our friends in Oxford saying it's actually going down through better health care. Inevitably, it's a consequence of age and better clinical skills and better recognition. Um, and it's estimated that um, a significant number of patients are growing in the ethnic minority and also uh, more early onset. This is mainly in the early onset, we think, an ethnic group through um, better services within reach into these services and recognising these patients, whereas before perhaps there was a longer delay in diagnosis, but it's not 100% clear if that is the reason. The other thing we all know is that receiving a diagnosis can be pretty life-changing, and often that's a piece of work when you tell someone they've got a diagnosis, part of the post-diagnostic work is to sort of um, consider it's not just a death sentence, which many people fear. And, uh, and it's interesting when you diagnose, I think it might be, and then you come back in a few months to see me. When they leave the room, or commonly with me, they say, well, at least it's not dementia, doctor. And you have to think, well, when they come back and see me, I'm going to have to prepare the ground because they then, before you, they arrive, they tell you that that would be awful for them. And you have to say, well, I'm not ruling it out. So therefore, you know, it's clearly a sort of can have a major impact. But as we know, you can live very well with dementia, and that's part of the role of recovery colleges and other initiatives. There is a stigma, and um, I see the sort of story, you know, this week with patients saying to me, I don't take my husband to the dinner parties anymore because he can't say anything, or he says silly things, and it's embarrassing. So we either don't go or I go on my own, which is sad to see, but it's how you manage that. And that's things like um, where Care Coach and other projects may well help with that. So um, we've worked... Um, for a few years developing uh, the concept of recovery colleges in dementia and recovery colleges are well known in adult mental health have been for some considerable time it's been championed by somebody called Professor Slade who's doing an evaluation of adult service at recovery colleges um, 
And part of the issue with um, recovery is what is recovery? And about 15 years ago, there was a quite a famous paper review published by um, Surrey, which is one of the first reviews I've seen with the concept of you can recover from dementia. And it, it really is, what do you mean by recovery? Because for medical, we mean cure. Whereas in this concept, it can mean, well, recovery can mean you can change your life. You can make small changes in your family network. It's not the same as the medical definition of recovery. Um, the other thing that we've um, thrown hand out in the development of this work is that um, they, there are negative attitudes in society about dementia and ageing. Um, and often it, they, they, they people feel they have to stay in the houses because they feel that society doesn't understand them. And that's where dementia-friendly communities have tried to address this. Um, it, it, it may, hopefully, it, it continues, um, although the sort of publicity around that has sort of switched off somewhat to an extent. So one wonders how that's going to keep going. I think the idea of um, empowering people and communities to support those with illness and the networks is critical. You can't rely necessarily on the health service, social care or private companies. There has to be some also partnership and beyond politicians with, with, with the public themselves. And the responsibility has to also involve them to an extent. And, and this, this is the, these are huge issues that society is considering. How much we invest, the impact of pension changes, the triple lock, etc., financial post-COVID recovery. What do we do about the care home deficits? What do we do about the huge social care deficits? These are things that everyone can have a think about, not just the people with dementia and their families, but also uh, offspring, children, relatives, and other members of society. It's very important this that we prepare for the future because dementia, although um, Biogen would have us believe that they've cured it, whatever the drug does, if it ever gets approved, it's unlikely to be a complete cure for the vast majority of patients. It will be work for a sort of slowing down for a limited number of people. Therefore, at present, we can't really see a game changer um, disease modification, modifying uh, medication or intervention that will change things over the next 10 to 15 years, perhaps. Beyond that, who knows? But the other thing about um, diagnosis and recovery is the whole post-diagnostic um, consideration. I've talked about some of my sort of reflections with patients uh, with the dinner parties, etc., and you have to be quite careful with them um, the way you um, communicate with people because people often say to me, I don't want to end up dead in a care home, you know, I've seen the awful stories, or I want to drive, I need to keep driving, how can I get my independence? Um, all the issues about finances, and also then we've got issues of wills and uh, worrying about financial abuse of families, potentially or not, which can occur, and also. The, the, the whole stigma about it's an illness, it's out there, it's common, it's not not rare, but it, you can you're not you're not dangerous. You can live very well with dementia for many years. You can live in the community and be content. Um, and there are services out there, both voluntary, statutory, etc. So there there is, but it's about mapping that, which is critical. And that's again where recovery can be helped by entities, perhaps as the uh, as, such as the recovery colleges. Um, the other thing uh, that uh, I, I love is the concept of uh, prescribed disengagement. Um, and this still occurs sometimes, and, it, and it's difficult in services because there's a huge demand, massive waiting lists in certain services, uh, staff are um, overrun, post-COVID social care has been put under pressure so that they have limited support they can provide. Where do people go? The charities are re rebooting their systems, but it's, it's clearly there is still a gap. And 
and there was data from last year where they did a survey just just before well, it was a survey a few months before the pandemic started national survey for the pride m program which is led by Newcastle's, and that found that there was huge postcode lotteries in what post-diagnostic support was available. Uh, what happens in Essex is not the same as in Yorkshire, it's not the same as in, um, in Northumberland, it goes on and on and on. And uh, there's still a, a huge pressure on, well, what is there? You know, what do, what can I expect? It does seem massive variations, sadly. So the prescribed de uh, disengagement is still um, sadly in existence although there are initiatives trying to overcome that. The problem with all this, this engagement is that if you don't get anything, then you retreat and then you just have you, you're, you're with your GP for crisis management. The GPs often think, uh, have struggle with themselves with lots of demands with patients, their comorbidities, and also they think that dementia may explain the heart attack. And that can occur with people thinking it's all dementia when in fact the physical illness then doesn't get adequately managed, partly because of um, skill set, education and system overload. Um, it's, it's not deliberate, it's just a sort of system issue, which is where taking ownership, learning about the illness, learning about how you can self-manage better through initiatives such as uh, social prescribing, uh, carer support and uh, perhaps recovery colleges may well sort of lead to people knowing when they need to go for help and how they can push for that if they're not getting the response they need. There's interesting evidence that if you uh, um, are isolated and very lonely, your cognition is worse. And there's some evidence from UCL on, on um, epidemiological uh, cohort studies where they've shown the cognitive scores are worse if you have no social contacts. That includes social media contacts. You don't just physically see people, but it's uh, you're isolated in your home and all you've got is a company is a television, which can be very difficult and, and damages your cognitive health. There's also a link there with uh, deafness because there's a strong um, link now between um, deafness and uh, the first signs of cognitive impairment. And that may well be linked to social connectiveness and social um, linking, because if you're deaf, you're hard to it's hard to communicate. And therefore, you know, it starts a vicious circle of lack of stimulation and that therefore may accelerate the dementia and the demise or bring on the onset of dementia. So these things have a biological plausibility. It's not just about sort of theoretical or behavioural issues. There is actual biological aspects of this. And in fact, in brain imaging studies, they've shown again that people who are socially isolated have a different MRI scan with, it, with um, tracer markers compared to those without in certain areas. And that may well be part of the sort of process of your worsening cognition. And therefore, it may well that that is potentially could be more powerful than many very expensive drugs that may or may not be approved the next year or so. Incre we know that um, increasing participation uh, by not just the people with dementia and cognitive impairment, but their family um, supporters ca can benefit patients. And it's the whole network effect. And in fact, we put in a bid last week for people under age 18 who know someone with dementia to try and upskill their education because it's a huge gap there. So there's a whole sort of system and it's not just the individual and also there's neighbours and friends and society members if you, if you haven't got any relatives for whatever reason. So this living experience and socialisation and connectedness is really important. Um, and the other thing to think about is flourishing. So part of that connectedness links to flourishing. So what is the definition of flourishing? It's quite contentious, but it's both living well, you're happy with your life, you're content, etc. There are scales for this. It does need further delineation, but if you could have a, there is a flourishing index, rather like there's a, a, in a parallel how cognitively impaired you are with the MMSE, 
And if, if people can do work on the flourishing index to show that at a certain level of flourishing, your health is X, that's a nice little link to make. There's work to be done on there, but it does feed many of the factors that we've talked about today with recovery and also um, social um, support and networks. So what is recovery? So this is the issue I talked about with medical recovery. And I, I'm a doctor and I, used, I sometimes still put my medical hat on and prescription pad and think drug, give that, pain goes, there we go, it's sorted. But that's not personal recovery. And, it, and, it, and it's quite challenging sometimes medically to think about that, although it's changing. And the idea is that it's uh, basically in medical recovery, you focus on the, on the disease, reducing symptoms and hospital days, whereas personal recovery is basically living well, you're content, what do you want? And I often say to people I see clinically, okay, I've got my ideas and I'm reaching for the prescription pad, but what are the three things you want to get out of your consultation today? And it's always about things like, I want to be I'm happy in my job, I want to feel well, and I want my children to be, to, to be happy and well. And it's that personal recovery. And then I say, that's fine. So how can we help you? Do you want a talking treatment, social treatment, or medication option? And you bring it together with the shared decision-making. And generally I find I get to, well, I don't know, maybe it's a N of one, but I feel people are happy with their outcome because they feel involved, but also they're taking personal responsibility for their recovery. So in promoting life beyond services, recovery needs a key ethical obligation. You have to consider that, that you need to honor the person, their citizenship, their role in society, the networks, um, and it has to represent the you know, difficulties and disabilities of the individual and how that can be best adapted to by society, but also how they can carve their sort of niche in society, despite, you know, can't change necessarily everyone else's behaviour, but it's important for the individual to feel how they can feel valued as such. This is the basic recovery college model and recovery in dementia. It's something called CHIME. I only learned about this a few weeks ago and I was asked to give a similar talk to this to a European group. And it's basically connection, hope, identity, meaning and empowerment. And when I gave this talk to PhD students, uh, there were about 20 or so there. There was someone from Holland who piped up who said that they were looking at recovery colleges and their survey on recovery found that hope is the strongest driver of recovery in people with dementia and families. They haven't written it up yet. They're, about, they're going to publish it at some point, but I was quite interested in that hope and optimism. They seem that is the best part of where you should aim for in your developments. Now they might be wrong, but that's from survey, their literature review kind of makes sense to me it's got core concepts like motivation inspiration mindfulness you know having dreams and aspirations that then energizes the rest of it they think however some people may say connectiveness is important and it just really depends i suppose on, on what are your deficits on an individual basis so not everyone may have hope deficits but they may have identity or connection deficits so you can play those up you know rather like sort of pushing a lever and personalize that and hopefully that's what recovery colleges will do in dementia. And on that point, I'm going to hand over to our speaker. Thanks, Chris. Brilliant. Um, that's really interesting about hope. Um, so part of part of what we're also looking at in this study, which we'll we'll cover again in a little while, is about what sorts of outcomes are going to be important for recovery colleges who are running dementia courses to measure, to evaluate the impact of their work. So that that will be a good paper to look out for in our literature search. When I look at this CHIME framework, um, for me as a, as a long-term mental health practitioner in dementia care and also someone who's studied 
the person-centred approach to dementia for quite a lot of years using dementia care mapping, which was developed by the late Professor Tom Kitwood. I really liked seeing this for the first time and I could see lots of um, lots of links really with with the recovery time framework and and person-centered care in dementia so it's been interest it's been an interesting journey for me to sort of pick this up and and see what other people have made of this just following on from chris in terms of the sort of structural look at recovery colleges and how they've impacted mental health trusts so they've they've been adopted and encouraged really since 2011 by the department of health who set up and commissioned a a collaborative called IMROC, so Implementing Recovery Through Organisational Change. And I know there's colleagues, um, Karina's on, on this meeting who, who had a lot to do with um, helping NSFT set up Recovery College. Um, and the colleges really are a way providing the structure as a way of supporting adults with a range of mental health difficulties. And they are, they're they vary across organisations, but essentially they recovery colleges offer educational adult educational courses for people who use mental health services and also their families and, and importantly, mental health staff. And even more importantly, is that courses are co-designed and co-run by people living with mental health difficulties who are described as peer tutors or peer supporters alongside experienced staff, mental health staff. And so NSFT's recovery college journey set up in 2013 really is about empowering people to become experts in their own journey with personal recovery, despite limitations that mental health conditions may be causing. And as I said before, it's un you know, it may seem unusual and it may not be the right words to talk about um, recovery in dementia if if we consider that dementia is a progressive illness. But if we if we apply the personal recovery um, concept, as Chris has described, to recovering a life after a diagnosis and through focusing on managing very difficult symptoms whilst living a meaningful, enjoyable life, can that apply to dementia? And and it's interesting that some services across England are now offering recovery college courses or courses about living well with dementia within the recovery college structures and they're available for people with dementia their families also friends um, and staff so so it is something that's cottoning on out there and also um, it linked this this sort of thinking has sort of been many threads over many years really it's linked with some work that we did in the prioritization project as well which i'll come back to I think recovery colleges also give mental health staff the opportunity and quite structured opportunity really to learn directly from people's lived experience and people attend courses together and develop skills in co-production so co-producing and working together to to put the course content together it's very much a shared power base and some studies have suggested that staff involved with recovery colleges report renewed motivation and a positive impact on how they how they work within the organisation. So there's something there about a recovery focused organisation helps with staff health helps with staff motivation. And a, and a particular note is the inspiring role of peer tutors within recovery college, and really novel perspectives. So we can only understand what people who are living through something can tell us. 
and the recovery college seems to provide that that structure on a regular embedded basis and that's that's a level of understanding of lived experience that's beyond something like a, a patient satisfaction questionnaire it's, it's very much about hearing equally um, on a level playing field about what people's experiences are and what can help and what doesn't help so it's it's not multifaceted really when we started looking at this um, research bid we could see that also the chime recovery framework has really relevant links and clearly relevant links with um, the NICE recommended person-centred care framework. And so NICE have, have, have talked about um, person-centred care as valuing people and those who care for them and providing individualised care, but also crucially taking the perspective, the lived experience perspective of people with dementia and their families, but really importantly, people with dementia. And then also looking at the social connections and the social psychology around around people. So it's not one of those elements in in singularity that, that you know, person centred care requires element, all of those elements to be met. And there's been various other authors and I'll just point you to Hammond and Debney, who Hammond, um, Laura Hammond was a research assistant with us for the first year of our development programme. And she was very interested in this and she wrote a paper. It was a, um, an opinion piece, really, with with Conrad Debney, who was um, a peer support worker, but who was also um, an experienced mental health nurse and worked with people with dementia. And they set up a recovery or Conrad set up a recovery college dementia course in Norfolk several years ago. And Chris has talked a little bit about recovery college research. So the first UK college was set up in 2009 and there was 85 um, in a study, counted in a study in 2017. And they're in existence or developing in other countries. Yet the published evidence of impact and effectiveness of recovery colleges is fairly limited. Lots of case studies, lots of local evaluations and some papers that I've referenced here. And at the moment, the National Institute for Health Research has funded two big programmes looking at the cost effectiveness and characterisation of recovery colleges in England. So Recollect 2 is the second part of that. And um, we will be working um, a little bit with the Recollect 2 team, so that's ongoing research. And they're looking at recovery colleges for people with men adults with mental health problems. So they're going to be linking us with us a little bit because we're looking at a dementia part of that. But really, the evidence base and and I, and I guess the theory of how these work and the impact of co-producing courses and attending recovery college dementia courses is really unknown at the moment. There's been a few um small pieces published and um post a presentation and a case study um but other than that there's very little out there about it so discovery came about inspired by the work of laura and conrad in amongst others and looking at some of the papers and some of the policy links and also a very inspiring group who are working in east suffolk care group who've been co-producing and working together for a number of years now um, with their recovery college course, dementia course. I evaluated their experiences of co-producing their course as part of a research fellowship, which I'm yet to publish, but I will let you know when I do. We also, when we were preparing this application, did a survey 
a scoping survey, which was quite limited in what we could ask, but we did survey UK recovery colleges to find out whether how many other people were, were offering or running or thinking of running um, dementia courses. And 19 out of the 28 who responded to our survey said that they were either positively engaging with or planning to. So this is happening, but there is an important gap in, in the evidence base. So for me, it was really about these lots of people are getting in a room in recovery colleges and spending lots of time um, co-producing. But what happens? What 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 happens? What what impact does this have on people? What sorts of outcomes um, are going on? Is it about hope? Is it about meaningful connections with people? And what what impact does peer support in dementia have? So we thought it was well worth researching. And as I said, it, it linked to um, it, to some of the findings from our prioritisation project. There was lots of input from people about potential feelings of abandonment, shame, guilt, despair and hopelessness in people who had a diagnosis of dementia. And it was it was marked how many people wrote about those sorts of feelings. So we published that project, but um, we very much linked discovery to our findings from that. Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe. It's free and means the podcast will automatically download every fortnight. Do rate and review and follow our social media accounts. They're all in the show notes. And more than anything, look after yourself.